Dr. Justin Smith. Would you like to tell me a little bit about yourself? Sure, sure. Uh, my name is Justin Smith. Uh, I had the fortune, not by my choice, but I got to grow up in Alaska, which was fantastic. I was born there, and so that's why I get to say it wasn't by my choice. But it was a phenomenal place to grow up. And one of the things that I really enjoyed about growing up in Alaska is that I had the opportunity to experience some really incredible adventures at a very early age, which kind of drove my desire to know how do people work, right? How do we respond under stress? How do we think about things under stressful situations? Um, and it kind of just launched me into this career of figuring out how do people function, which is always exciting. So that led to your love of psychology and all that. It did, yeah. It was a very smooth transition. So I got to do my bachelor's at Montana State University in Bozeman, Montana. And one of the fun things about that was it was a mountains in Alaska to mountains in Montana transition. And so uh, it was a pretty easy choice in terms of which, which was a good fit for university for me, which was nice. I've been over there. It is gorgeous. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's, be it's a beautiful. I mean, it reminds me a lot of Boise and Idaho in the sense that there's adventure around every corner and you have to kind of choose what you want to do that day because there's so much possibility. Yeah, living in the shadow of a mountain. Right? Yes, no, right? it's phenomenal. <laughs> so what are some of your biggest joys in life? Yeah, so the things that I get and derive great joy from are discovering new things and figuring out what's, you know, kind of figuring something out in terms of how does it work. And I don't mean that in like a mechanical sense. I mean in a overall systems level, like where do things fit in? Um, how do how do systems move? How do individuals within systems move or behave? Uh, that's the thing. And so the idea of discovering or having those aha moments, those bring me great joy uh, professionally and the personal side. Right? I, I, I love my family. I, I would spend every moment with my children if I could. Uh, that'd be fantastic. be hard to pay the bills that way. Uh, but that's something where, you know, people ask me what sparks joy. It's the idea of creativity and having those like, oh, that's what that, that's how that works. So that's what that means. Those are moments that I think uh, drive me to get up every morning and, you know, seek, seek those out. How about fears or stressors? What are some of those in your life? So fears and stressors, that's something where it's a fun question in terms of the work that I did for my PhD dissertation uh, was based on stress and decision making. And so I work very hard to try and not be stressed out. Um, but what's, what does stress me out are the fears that I have, which I would say are that idea of the uncertainty, right? That as humans, we, we've, we've evolved to be uh, fearful of the unknown or things that we can't just always tell what's going on, which I think kind of couples into the fact that that's why I like to figure things out. Um, but yeah, the idea when something is unclear, that's why I would say stresses me out in terms of what is it that if a customer's client's asking me something, and they can articulate very clearly. We can't come to a, a very clear understanding of what it is they're looking for. That could be a little bit stressful. So I work very hard to make sure we have the questions in, you know, up, up our sleeve to be able to say, what is it we could do for you? Or how can we help you solve this problem? What is it you'd like to predict, right? That kind of uh, questioning to leave those down. So it lowers my stress levels. I know working with customers, they're like, I have a problem but I don't really know how to describe it in the data. <laughs> You're just like, oh my goodness. <laughs> uh, so what can I help you with? Yeah. I, I can do something if you have data on yes. it. Do you have data on the problem? <laughs> then what is it you're looking for? That's the other part too. Where if we solve for this, will that tell you what you're asking for? No. Okay, let's not do that. Yeah, let's go somewhere else. That's good. All right. So then the question becomes, how did you become... Justin, like what is your official title at St. Luke's? Can you yeah, tell me? Absolutely. So I'm the senior director for advanced analytics at St. Luke's Health System here in Boise, Idaho. And the journey I think started, so the 
don't know if you want the short, the medium, or the long answer. Uh, the journey started in terms of, you know, the idea of adventure in Alaska, right? So I had some pretty incredible adventures. Also had individuals and friends I knew that passed away from some of the adventures didn't go very well. And so that was kind of what kicked off the, how, how do humans behave under stress and what makes humans tick? And so studying psychology at Montana State was a fantastic opportunity to kind of get the foundation groundwork in for that. It was something that I enjoyed and uh, it was just kind of, you know, a fun thing to study. In addition to that, I did all the pre-med stuff as well. So I got a really strong science background, like the chemistry, biochemistry, physics, all that kind of stuff. And so I knew I really liked psychology, but I also really liked the bench work, kind of the, hard, the harder sciences, right? The hard science. Um, and then I had a good friend who went on exchange to Ireland. He came back. We're in Bozeman. He, we were just doing something random. And he said, you have to go on exchange. And I was like, I don't have time. I have to go through and get done in four years, then go to something else. And he's like, no, you'll, it will change your life. You have to go on exchange. And so I looked around because I'm a planner. I didn't want to miss and like essentially lose a whole year of my undergrad, uh, mostly because I was also doing paying for school myself. So I found two places in the world that would continue along with my and not derail me too much for my uh, exchange program because I was following his advice. His other advice was you have to go for a year. Don't do a semester. Go for the whole year. I was like, okay. So it was either Australia or Sweden. And I was like, well, both of those sound pretty interesting. Turns out I knew a bunch of people going to Australia. So I was like, <laughs> kind of looking for the experience where I won't know anybody where I'm going to. And it'll be, it'll be something that'll be a very new kind of experience to get into. And so I was able to go on exchange to Sweden for a year for my senior year in undergrad. And while I was in Sweden, I found out that if you can get into the university system in Sweden, if you can get accepted, education is essentially free. Oh. You, pay for you pay for housing and you know, cost of living and stuff. And so that kind of kicked off this spark in me of saying, this is really interesting to live you know, abroad, kind of being a new culture, immersed in that. It was phenomenal. And I was greatly enjoying the experience. And I, I had this kind of idea of like, if I can get into the master's program in psychology there, I can continue to go for it. And uh, through persistence, I would say immense persistence, <laughs> I was able to convince them to let me come in and do that. And so I was able to do my master's in Sweden, um, which is phenomenal. So overall, the total time I spent there was just under four years. Um, and it was, it was a phenomenal experience. And then moved back to the United States, and I had a good friend. This is the long version, by the way. So you can edit this out if we need to. But <laughs> I had a good friend who was living in South Dakota, and he said, don't laugh, you should move to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Now, mind you, I've lived in very high uh, latitude climates, so cold, mostly dark, kind of rainy, Alaska, Bozeman's beautiful, mm -hmm. mountains, both places. Sweden was in a forest, but also high, you know, high latitude. And... Uh, I was like, there's no way in the world I'm moving to South Dakota. And then in this email, which I still have, I actually dug it up. He goes through in two paragraphs and says, you can stay with me. I'm living in my mom's rental house. So rent is nearly free. You could have my old job at the hospital system uh, in Sioux Falls and kind of get your feet on it. And I commute down because he was in medical school at the time. I commute down to the university, which is 50 miles away. Uh, and you can take some classes if you want. Well, that sounds pretty awesome. So I have a built-in friend base. I have a place to work and I could take some classes if I'd like to see kind of what I wanted to do at that point. Um, so I did that, and then as I was getting, I got uh, asked to apply to a PhD program in psychology there, and uh, the longer version, again, this is the fun part of the story, so I'm looking, I have to have three letters of recommendation. Mm -hmm. Now, mind you, I've just moved back to the United States, kind of lost touch some of my contacts in Bozeman, so I had a few, I had taken a few courses at that time, and one of the professors I was working with was a neuroscientist, Dr. Cliff Summers, phenomenal, world-famous individual in stress and research, and I remember I walked into Cliff's office, you know, during his office hours, and I said, excuse me, Dr. Summers, you know, I'd like to ha ask you for a letter of recommendation. And he says, shut the door. 
He never shuts the door Ooh. in his office. Yeah. And I was like, I have highly offended this individual. Something's <laughs> gone completely wrong. I was like, oh no. And so I shut the door and turned around. He goes, I don't think you should do that. I was like, oh, kind of having my dreams crushed at the moment, right? And he said, no, I want you to be in my lab. Oh. And that was the moment where I was taking one of his courses and I was enjoying it thoroughly. And for me, it was this, like, it hadn't really even crossed my mind in terms of I didn't have the exact background to go right into neuroscience, but I had the foundation there, right? And so that was kind of the nice thing about doing all the pre-med courses in Bozeman. Um, and so, yeah, I, I went through the process, applied, was accepted into his lab, and then was able to study stress and decision-making. Um, he was one of the, the individuals that absolutely shaped kind of the formation of how you think about something, how do you solve a problem, how do you how do you come up with hypotheses, right? How do you explore data? Um, what is it that you're actually looking for? And then uh, the other part too is how do you think about having a flex, we call it having a flexible frame, right? So leaving yourself along the track that you've set out, but at the same time being open to new opportunities and new explanations. And so uh, a lot of times the experiments we set up, we would set them up purposely, which we try and do today as well, where if our hypothesis was proven, like it worked out how we thought it was going to, fantastic. And if it didn't, it also meant something very important for us, right? So it's kind of that idea of setting it up. So there wasn't ever a true like failed experiment. It was like, oh, that didn't go out, but we found this out, kind of the serendipity uh, and trying to set ourselves up for success in that way, um, which was fantastic. And so transitioning out of the PhD program, uh, graduating with that, and then uh, longer version story, which I'll, I'll truncate for this this portion and we uh, want the full, want the full story. Okay, okay, we want to know right. how you got. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, uh, the long version, the fun story, I, uh, I knew who I wanted to work with for my postdoc. I was very specific with that. And, uh, it's this individual who was out of a very well-known, uh, Ivy league university on the East coast, super hard to get in touch with. Basically he has very few publications, but he's working with stress and decision-making at a very uh, interesting level. I'm a little vague on purpose on a lot of this, just as a heads up. So uh, anyways, <laughs> talked to the head of the department that he was in at his university at a conference after I met this individual a couple times, the head of the department. I said, hey, do you know so-and-so? And his eyes lit up and he goes, how do you know him? I said, I don't, I don't actually know him, but I know of his work and I'd like to see if he's interested in having a postdoc at some point. He goes, give me your email address. We'll see what happens. Ooh. I was like, well, that seems weird, but okay. And so I gave my email address and thought, well, that nothing will ever happen. And about a month later, I got an email from the individual. And he's like, hey, heard you might be looking for a postdoc a little bit. Uh, come out. We'll do an interview. And uh, we'll see how it goes. I was like, fantastic. And so went out, had this incredible experience. Um, things were going well. And everything was ready to go. So I graduated in May. And then about June time frame, I sent an email. Because he said, contact me in the middle of summer. We'll figure out logistics. Um, and the other fun part is it was not funded as a traditional postdoc, meaning it wasn't coming through like an NIH or an NSF grant. And he, he, I emailed him and he goes, oh, I've been meaning to email you. Some things happen. Our funding's paused for a year. So we'll just pick it up in a year. And I thought, I have a, my first child on the way. I can't just not have a day. Figure out something for a year is a little bit, you know, terrifying. And I said, okay, thank you. You know, I'll keep you posted on my situation. Don't know if that's going to work for me or not. And that was like the end of one of, the, I don't remember exactly what week it was. That was the end of the week. And then the beginning of the next week, I'm literally going to get coffee, meet some friends to kind of see you know, what opportunities are out there. And I run into a friend who I hadn't seen in a while. And she's the, one of the executives at this massive health system in Sioux Falls. And as I'm walking in, she goes, hey, Justin, how are you? I was like, good. She goes, do you, do you know statistics? I was like, yeah, I know. She goes, cool. 
She goes, and then science, like, are you good at science? I was like, <laughs> yes, I am a scientist. And I was like, that's what I am, kind of thing. She goes, oh, cool. Well, I might give you a call sometime. I was like, all right, that was weird, but sounds great. I'll talk to you later. And then through a series of increasingly bizarre interviews with that, with that health system, this is all kind of before data science was even really a word. They were looking to set up essentially an advanced analytics or a data science team there. And uh, I, you know, fortuitously lucked out in terms of getting to be asked to help set that up for them. And the fun part, when I was interviewing for it, I kept telling the story to them of, this is again, this series of bizarre interviews. I kept meeting people <laughs> who were higher up in the organization. To where at one point I was sitting across the table from the CMO, chief medical officer. I was like, why am I meeting the chief medical? <laughs> I was like, what is this? Cause I didn't even have a name for the job yet. I mean, they were still trying to figure it out. And the story I was explaining to her was, cause she's like, we have a lot of data. I said, I have a lot of data. I thought I had a lot of data as a PhD student, right? As a PhD candidate. And I said, one of the, one of the things I kept thinking about and the reason why data was, has always been so attractive, not just creating it through the experimental process, but just, just being able to experience, you know, the possibility that are the answers that lie, the aha moments that lie within. And the story I was telling her essentially was that I had an army of under, I think I had six or seven undergrads at one point analyzing as a human, which now we would use computer vision for, uh, animal behavior, right? And they're watching videos because I had to videotape all my experiments. And it was this moment I had when I was doing that, I was you know, watching two of them kind of come in and setting them up and getting them, you know, helping out with scoring for a second. I was like, there has to be a better way to do this. Like there has to be a computer or some way to be able to, and literally at that point, I'm describing computer vision that really hadn't made it out of like a few labs in the country. I think Google was starting to do it, but the word didn't exist. And I asked all the math professors I could find, I had some friends that were doing their PhDs in statistics. Uh, I had a couple of conversations, had some contacts in Minnesota. I was talking to people there and they were like, we don't even know what you're talking about. And I was like, well, it has to exist. <laughs> I was like, we have, this I, has to, yeah. If you can think it, you can make it. Right, exactly. And so it was this fascinating place to be where I, I knew it had to exist somewhere. Mm -hmm. I didn't have the exact skill set to build it myself at all, but I knew, I knew it had to be out there, right? I knew that would be a better way to analyze video data. And so I remember I found somebody that put me in touch with a uh, potential contact. I think they were Carnegie Mellon, I believe, at the time. Anyways, I, I, before I emailed them, I went and talked to my professor, like, to Dr. Dr. Summers, and I said, uh, I may have found a place where I can go and learn this technique, i.e. computer vision. Um, can I go and do it? And he's like, absolutely. He's like, it'll just add like a year, year and a half onto your degree. I was like, well, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I was like, this point, I'm too far in. I was like, I need to get done. Uh, and I said, okay. But that was kind of that catapulting moment of like, there's more out there that we can squeeze out of all these massive large data sets that we have available to us. Um, and so that was kind of how the transition, that spark of, you know, I don't know what's next, but one of my good friends and my lab mates, uh, he has the famous quote that I re uh, repeat all the time. His name is Dr. Russ Carpenter. He was a professor at Stanford for a while and now he's moved on. But his response is, you know, the job you'll have in five years doesn't exist yet. Meaning, you know, we get to do really exciting, creative things. And a lot of times the idea is out there, but there may not be a word associated with it yet. And that's what we run into kind of often in the healthcare system too, as well as trying to have a discussion on what is it you're looking to solve? What's the problem you want to solve? And then what are the techniques we have available? Like we try and draw things on the whiteboard and we don't always have the language skills as humans yet to describe what it is that we're looking to do. And that's where I get excited in terms of, you know, how do we take current machine learning technology and you know stacks and systems that we're able to build and models we can build? And then how do we convey it in a way that's so simplistically easy, anyone can look at it and say, oh yeah, that's what we should be looking at, or that's the important one, right? That's what gets me excited kind of in a day-to-day -day 
uh, realm in terms of taking, and again, too, it doesn't hurt to have the neuroscience background to say this is how humans process visual information. Uh, and that's really fun because sometimes you look like either, I jokingly say, you look, like a, you look like a ninja or a magician when somebody goes, oh, wow, this is super easy. And you're like, it is. Because there's a lot of work in the background. <laughs> I make it look easy, <laughs> right? The, the, the plan is you would pick it up and go, of course we should do this. Absolutely. Uh, that That is something that I, I you know, I, I, I very much enjoy experiencing. And also uh, with the team that I've built at St. Luke's kind of trying to cultivate that attitude as well, which they're phenomenal. And so that's pretty fantastic. Yeah, it sounds amazing. It sounds like you're doing really good work. I, I remember kind of, well, you know, working with customers, they always think that, machine learning teaches itself mm. and we aren't there yet. Someone still has to go in and teach the machine learning how to behave. Correct. It Correct. just isn't something you kick off and go see you later. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see you. We're having a large <laughs> discussion now and kind of one of the things that I, I, I jokingly say I get up in my soapbox for is that idea, what you're describing in my mind is the human on the loop, right? Or the human in the loop. And so in healthcare, we want to be very specific. And what I tell our uh, clinicians, our physicians, nurses, uh, patient care individuals is that machine learning, our predictive models will never supersede clinical judgment or critical thinking. Meaning you are the human at the end of the day and I want you to do the decision. I'm not to let the decision be made by the machine. And so that's something where we're very um, diligent about that at this point in terms of building predictive models that answer specific questions, but also are you know, not there to make a decision for a human being, which again kind of leads to the idea of they're not going to take your jobs. Like that's either kind of when, when people get into the AI hype portion, like machines will do everything. Well, not really. There's the great, uh, the great example. You can Google it, but it, it's uh, the early stages of when Boston Robotics was doing, or Boston Dynamics was doing one of their robots and it, <laughs> trying to pick up a box and it picks the box and destroys it and then it falls over. And so we play that video, that short clip often to say, what can we help you with? It's like, this is our process. And it's like, what? But, that's, that's pretty fun. Yeah. So it's, it's finding that balance and kind of organizing it in a way that's again, comprehensible for the end user, for the customer so that they can really get the most out of it to say, how do we augment your decision-making at the end of the day? That's very cool. So one question I really want to ask you is what would you tell a child if they wanted to become a data science leader like you? Yeah. Yeah. No I, pressure. No pressure. I know. Right? <laughs> That's one of those questions in terms of, you know, what are the things that I look for in the individuals that I surround myself with or surround myself, you know, around? Um, the idea of that insatiable curiosity, right? Be a tenacious learner. If you don't know how something works, the beautiful thing now about living in the day that we live in is you can Google for more or less anything you want or search engine, you know, whatever search engine you'd like to use uh, and figure it out. I mean, that's something where you can learn so much if you have the time and curiosity to figure it out. And so it's that insatiable, tenacious, you know, lifelong learning type of mentality. Again, because what we're doing today will be old by the time that person's looking to get into the workforce or to have their make their mark on society. And so it's the idea of being, being curious and then also understanding, there's another great quote I have uh, from Dr. Carpenter is, you never know when you're going to get a golden nugget, right? So you never know where that moment or that idea sparks and you go, that relates to this, which relates to this, which then relates to this. And that helps me solve the problem that I'm trying to solve. And uh, it's kind of having that idea of the flexible frame to be, you know, open to the idea that there's other ideas out there. Show me the evidence and be able to be curious about it. And that's something where it's hard because you tell people be curious and like, okay, 
right? But you can see it. Like you, you know when you meet somebody, if that's an individual that's engaging and interested and wants to participate. Um, and that's something where I, I, I kind of trying to encourage both my kids, but also individuals that I get to work with, um, again, who are phenomenal. The idea of, you know, how do we make this better? How might we? It's kind of one of the sayings I like to, I like to think about often too. But that's something where I would say, stay curious, right? Don't, don't ever feel like you figured everything out because as soon as you do that, then life gets really boring. Okay, so more <laughs> about your day-to-day. Sure, sure. Okay, what keeps you inspired and motivated? Because, you know, sometimes the grind of looking at data or the grind of like trying to make sure we collect the right data so we, like, how do you keep going? Yeah, yeah. Uh, another, another great question, I think, in terms of what, because again, you know, 85% of your job can be fantastic. There's still 15% where you're like, this is not my favorite part of the day. And that's okay. I think that's part of balancing life with, you know, things that are super exciting. You can't just eat dessert for breakfast all the time. That's a, another battle we're having in my house at the moment. But um, <laughs> something, along those, uh, something along the lines of, you know, I, I, whenever I get stressed out or whenever I think this isn't going as well as I think it should be, taking a step back and saying, what is it that we can look to accomplish and what small part of this can be a building block for something larger, right? And so kind of trying to have that, not just the tactical side of what is it we're building for some individual or group today, but how does this fit for a larger picture, right? How do, how do we make this so it's a larger part? It's a piece of the puzzle of the, the picture we're trying to put together. Um, that's something that keeps me motivated. And the other fun thing is this field is changing so fast mm-hmm. where, you know, it's different today than it was even a year ago. And it's different for sure than it was two years ago. So accessibility um, packages and libraries that are coming out that are just exceptionally well at, you know, building these phenomenally mo- phenomenal models that require little or a lot less compute power than perhaps something that was happening, you know, two or three years ago. That gets us pretty excited. Um, so I think just the idea of getting to work with really interesting data sets, that's super fun. Uh, and then two, getting to solve problems and challenges where in, in healthcare as a field or an industry, we are still in the beginning, beginning middle phases of becoming truly, truly technologically driven. Um, and that's what I, I kind of like to remind individuals that we just got the EMR, I'm using air quotes now, 10 to 15 years ago. So it's still a really new technology. I mean, I work with people that do have done paper charts. You mean electronic medical records? Yes, sorry. There's yeah, the yeah. AWS uh, EMR yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah, so sorry. I just want to like yeah, very yeah, quickly no, say <laughs> medical records. Yes, electronic, yeah, the transition <laughs> from a paper chart yes. to an electronic medical record. And I, I had the fortune when I was in uh, South Dakota working at the healthcare system, healthcare system there uh, where I got to view and you know participate in very small level of care with the, with the paper chart. And so I remember the days when you could just go outside the patient's room, which today is just totally perplexing, pick up their chart. Anybody could theoretically pick it up. You weren't supposed to, but anybody could pick it up and flip through and see what's going on with the patient. Now that's all digital. And we're still, uh, again, at the beginning phases of making sure it's, it's not just ingested in a digital format, but it's also being able to be leveraged in digital format. Um, and the potential is phenomenal. I mean, that's what gets me really excited is, where we're going to be in the next three to five years will be truly like, again, it'll be a, another major shift in the, in the technology and care we'll be able to provide. Can you talk in some more detail about EMR? Sure, sure. Is it just like a giant unstructured JSON file for each uh, individual? Or? No, it's uh, so th- there's a, a couple of main vendors. I'll be vendor non-specific just to keep it non-specific. Okay. Um, 
but basically it's it's you know a massive amount. I think there's like thirty five or forty thousand tables, oh, and wow. some are really good to use, and some are I, I don't want to say near garbage, but not that great to use. And so that's part of the the challenge that we're running into is how do we organize that? And so I'm extremely fortunate individually that I get to work in within a department. We have a phenomenal data management team. I mean, they are incredible, world-class individuals literally are working on this team and they structure data so that when we get to work with it, it's like a lot of the data munging portion, if we work with them ahead of time, they take care of. And so that's fantastic. Uh, and again, this is something where I'm extremely fortunate and I think you know St. Luke's is extremely smart to, to set it up this way um, because it takes a lot of time and really intelligent people doing very hard work to get data structured so it's really usable. The other part of that, so I, I like to call this a three-legged stool. So we have data management, then we have our business intelligence team, also phenomenal individuals, world-class, you know, business intelligence analysts and developers that can take and help to, you know, creatively pluck out these solutions or create data sets. Um, if we're not as, if we're not as skilled in the area, so a good example in, in healthcare is pharmacy, so drugs, right? Super complex, and it turns out there's a lot that can go on inside those tables, and if you just approach it from the naivety of a data science side without having the, the deep expertise, we could make some potentially major errors. And so that's why we work very closely with our business intelligence. We don't make a, a poor assumptions, I think would be the way to think about it. But again, it's that three-legged stool idea where the data really is, uh, it's very rich, it's very deep because we have a lot of individual you know, data on, uh, in, on patients and we are hyper aware of our security and being protective of PHI, um, protected health information. And it's the idea where, you know, getting to work with these really talented teams, business intelligence, data management, to kind of try and solve these problems is fantastic. And so back to the idea of it's not totally, it's not unstructured, it's structured. And that's one set. I mean, that's the part two where uh, our department gets to work, our, my team specifically as well, on challenges across the whole business. And so really it's like having a finance industry in-house. It's like having a supply chain in-house. It's like having a revenue cycle, you know, part of finance there, the electronic medical record, the clinical side. Um, so that's also what's, again, going back to the other question I get really excited about is there's many different days where we're working on a completely different problem for a completely different group of individuals that is super fun. It's really diverse. You know, it's not this, we're solving the same clinical problems over and over again. I mean, it's really, truly a very... Uh, dynamic workplace and so that's that's also really fun sounds like it. <laughs> <laughs> like i mean like part of me is like what does the flow like where do your questions come from are they coming from z physicians are they coming from like business leaders how does that flow how do things end up in your lap of like here's a really good problem or is it a data scientist being like we have the data we should be doing this like or yep. does it come from all yeah so the short answer is yes I'm just kidding. Yeah. So, so yeah, we do have uh, we do have structure around kind of how you get to work with our team. The other the other the other hard part with this is we're we're a fairly small team, and we get to work on really challenging problems, but we can't work on every problem, right? Mm -hmm. So that's also part of it too. Is um, as I like to say, I'm happy to have a conversation, but the problems then the the models that we get to help build usually. Uh, have to hit the threshold of being for many, either many individuals, like if it's a clinical problem, has to be able to span the whole system, or be so either financially relevant, aka very, very expensive, that if we don't get it right, it's a big deal. And so there's those kind of two main thresholds to meet in terms of, uh, you know, what, what we get engaged to work on. 
Um, that being said, right, I always let my team know, hey, if you have 15, 20, 30 minutes that you're waiting for something to run or, you know, a meeting ended early, go exploring. Like that's where the cool things can happen, right? So think about it. And I try and get that, build in that flexible frame of, well, we're working in this for finance, but I was thinking about the heart issue problem we were working on a couple weeks ago. And is there a relationship or, you know, is there something that we're seeing in the EMR that nobody's recognized before? Um, COVID was a fantastic endeavor and we don't know anything about this disease. Mm-hmm. And so we did a lot of data mining at scale very quickly, um, as did everybody in the country, you know, 2020, March 2020. is What does this look like? You know, who's testing positive? What does this disease even look like? Um, that type of work. And so I would say usually when we get engaged, it's, it's by either a clinical leader or uh, an executive that's that says this is something I need help with, and we get to help them with their problems. So, yeah. Who would you identify as a mentor for you, and yeah. why? Yes. Uh, again, great question. So the mentors that I've I've been ex- extremely fortunate to have, um, they come in a, a different varieties, but kind of the, the theme that goes through the mentors that I've had is. The individuals that I look up to or I believe have qualities to aspire to, right? And that means that they're doing something extremely well. They are champions or hegemons in their field, right? These are individuals that, again, I'm, I'm happy to say you can reach. If I, re, if I reach out to LinkedIn, I know they come back. I have their cell phone numbers now. Um, but it's just that they're able to provide a different perspective. And the other thing that I look for in a mentor is somebody will cut it to you straight. Right? Like, where am I doing well? Where am I not doing? What are my gaps, right? Because... You know what you're good at, but it's where can I where can I improve or what do you see or a skill set that I should look at building for the future state of where I want to go? Um, those are things where the mentors that I've had have been phenomenal in that space and they're doing very exciting things. Uh, and what I would say for individuals that are looking for mentors is it never hurts to ask. The worst thing they could say is no. Right. And that's something where once you kind of have that mentality it really opens the doors because again, you want to be really, you want to be specific and, and diligent and you know who you kind of seek out to have, have a mentor mentee relationship with. But at the same time, go big. I mean, it never hurts, right? That's, that's the other, that's the other part. And it doesn't have to be somebody that's famous or somebody that's, you know, very well known for something. It can be somebody that you look up to that you see, how do they get to where they are and what are the things that they're doing to make them successful? And then how can they help, you know, guide your path as well? And that's something where, I, I work and think about how do we open the doors to people behind me? Because people open doors for me, right? I, I absolutely know that. And how do I help, you know, not just open those, but kick and blow down those doors to people that are coming behind me that are super talented? And how do we get them into this space? How do we make sure they're uh, supported and resourced and engaged in problems that need to be solved? Because there's, turns out there's lots of things that we can solve. <laughs> just need the right data. That's exactly it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I had one other point, but I can't remember what it is now. So <laughs> that's fine by yeah. me. So speaking about being a mentor and everything, how do you define success? Yes, I I speak about that often. I think about it often, and success is something that you have to define for yourself, right? The you know, there's lots of reading, lot lots. There's been research now that's shown once you cross a certain threshold for financial income, you don't get any happier, mm-hmm. right? So I think that's pretty clear at this point is that we know empirically now through data mm-hmm. that money does not equal happiness. Yep. Um, but at the same time, you want to make sure that you choose and, and follow your abilities, if that makes sense, like the things that you know you're good at and try and choose a career path that supports those. I'm not 
very good at all at drawing, right? So I know I could not be a visual artist and support my family. Like that would be a horrible career choice. Do I enjoy it? Yes, but I'm not good at it at all. Um, and so when I would say define a success, it's the idea of what brings you joy and also what's something that's sustainable that you can do, right? I think that's something where um, a lot of individuals that I've talked to that were phenomenal athletes, you know, like Olympians or people that, you know, have done these incredible things by their early to mid twenties, they have a lot of struggle with that. They have to try and figure out, okay, now what do I do? I'm known for this. I'm world famous for X, Y, or Z, but now I'm going to go and be an accountant, right? And they're like, what do you do with that? And so that's the idea of kind of choosing a, choosing a career or, a, you know, passions that you're interested in that you can be successful, that you're, that you have some talent kind of to be involved in. So for me, what defines success is the idea of leaving, leaving it better than I found it. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, helping those individuals that sometimes just need a little like, you know, volunteering or mentoring or helping somebody that you could see them on the cusp of doing something that's super phenomenal. They just need a little bit of bump. Um, that's really fun. And then also, again, solving really important problems and having somebody that goes having having the share the shareable aha moment with somebody that to me defines success. We look at something together and they go, oh, and that little light bulb exactly. turns on. Yes, yeah. yes. And it's so much fun. And it's this it's this ethereal moment that kind of chase or, you know, I chase often. And then when it happens, you're like this, all the hard work to get here was worth it because to have that other individual say, Oh, I get it now. This is it. And you go, great. <laughs> What's next. Right. And that's, that's really fun. So what is a piece of information you would want to tell your grandkids that would help shape them into adults? That's a really tough question. That's a good question. <laughs> I think, I think for my grandkids, it would be the idea of being curious, right? Understanding that, you know, having that curiosity, and it's, it's, a, it's a mindset, to be completely honest. It's the idea of waking up and, and saying, I don't know what today's going to hold, but I'm going to have a positive attitude through it. And then also, and this is the, this is the part where uh, it's a little more pointed, but it's, it's the tenacity to not quit, right? And so that was, I was joking with some individuals recently, uh, some MD medical doctor friends of mine, and uh, they were like, what, you know, kind of, we were joking, they were like, what's your deal? And I was like, no, 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 the thing with the PhD is means we just don't quit. <laughs> like literally, I, we don't quit. We have to see it through. We have to get it done. And it's at, you know, massive expense to ourselves to dedicate it to science and to just really figure out, and, you know, it's this really arduous process I don't recommend it unless you have to. And it's one of those things where like, a lot of people ask me, should I do this? Should I do the degree or not? It's like, do you have to do it? Like it's that level of commitment to be able to do a PhD in something like neuroscience, physics, chemistry. Um, Cause it's, it's completely absorbing, but that would be what I'd say, you know, to a grandchild would be the idea of stay curious, stay tenacious. And then also once you figure out what it is that gives you that kind of aha moment or what it is that you think is make you, you know, feel successful, chase that down. So really quickly, one yeah. thing I learned in grad school was PhD actually stands for piled high and deep. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so every time someone says PhD, I'm like. Piled high, yeah. Yep, yep. Piled higher and deeper is also, uh, yep. <laughs> yep, the acronyms. Okay, so kind of thinking about your vision for medical and data science. Yeah. What's the biggest thing that you think they will accomplish within the next five years in medical data science. Sure, sure. So when I this is a fun question too because it's sort of what am I starting to see the sparkles of right now, right? Mm -hmm. It's like what is it that's kind of 
the glimmers are starting to show up across not just St. Luke's health system, but other health systems as well, kind of the industry. What I think will be happening in five years, and this is a long time in the field, right? But what I think will be happening is something similar to um, kind of an, a, a nearly, not I want to say automated, but a nearly automated uh, kind of monitoring system in the background. And I think that's coming together through wearables, like our cell phones that we carry, our watches now can measure all sorts of phenomenal, you know, can collect all sorts of phenomenal data. But also when there's a, a patient who's an inpatient, right, we have, if, the, if unfortunately you're in the ICU, the intensive care unit, you're hooked up to all sorts of monitors as we get these almost second by second feedback um, loops that we can, we can set up theoretically. But I think what we'll see in five years is this idea where you'll have your human, right, who will be always the expert taking care of you and providing care and making those very, very clear, critical decisions. But in the background, I think we will have, we're starting to see, we're setting some up now, these monitoring algorithms that will be able to predict certain things happening in the future. Mm -hmm. A good example is uh, predicting sepsis, so a, a bacterial infection in your blood. Super dangerous, right? Yeah. It's not good at all. And so we have uh, the, the start of the process of beginning to predict sepsis in humans when they're inside the hospital. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty phenomenal because in sepsis, minutes count. Like literally minutes are, are the faster you can get to a patient and start a sepsis protocol or treating them for, for the disease, um, for the infection, the, the higher the greater chances of their survival. And so that's something where just to use sepsis as an example, that's one that maybe hundreds or thousands of algorithms running in the background because we have the compute power to do it and the data has already been kind of aggregated. That's why I say we're, we're still in the early, stent, early phases of getting uh, the, the electronic medical record, say we've had it for 10 to 15 years, but where it's a really solid data set is a lot smaller number of years just because everything's getting set up, everything's getting munged together. Um, so I think theoretically in five years we'll have sort of this, you know, you'll, you'll come into the healthcare system or the healthcare system will be a part of kind of how you're living your life in terms of what makes you healthy and happy. Mm -hmm. And then for the acute, like the exact example of if you're an inpatient in the hospital, if you're having a hospital stay for whatever reason, you'll have all these systems in the background that the physicians or the nurses don't have to think about. But when something is going on or there's a high probability of, of an event occurring, they'll have a, essentially a warning to say, just as a heads up, you know, the probability for this person to have sepsis just went up by 40%, right? Because they're monitoring all these different things. And, and what's really fun is when I work with physicians, they, they know right away as a human, like this person, this patient's very sick mm -hmm. and they have to prove why they're sick, right? So they know what they can- We have to run them. the test, exactly, we have to get the results exactly. back. Okay, now it says, Correct. now we can. And so what happens in, the, in this, the, the frame I like to put around it for uh, the clinical providers is the idea that as a human being, I can only be in one place at one time. Mm -hmm. A computer can be everywhere all the time, mm -hmm. right? And so that's the idea where I think we'll have something akin, um, I don't know if it'll be a product or it'll just probably be baked in, but We'll have it be many, many algorithms running to predict many different potential outcomes. And then when a human needs to get involved, it will help to alert and say, hey, this patient, and it goes both ways, right? So I, I'm using the example when somebody gets really sick, but it could be this person's experiencing tremendous recovery. You know, you weren't going to come back and visit them until next morning, but you could probably discharge them today, mm -hmm. right? And that's good for the health system as well, because we know individuals that get out of the health system, you know, can get back to their regular lives sooner. And so that's kind of always the goal is make sure healthy enough to go to the next stage um but at the same time just how humans how we can only be in one place at one time based on scheduling if we can have you know certain things set up to say this person's getting better faster than we anticipated so let's let's continue on that path and so it's really it's really kind of this you know you know extremely sensitive slash sophisticated monitoring that if done well 
won't be intrusive. It'll just kind of be in the background, but mm-hmm. a technology that will hopefully be able to catch and then intervene and, and set up interventions for those individuals going kind of both ways in the health spectrum. So, so what do you think some of the biggest like roadblocks to that are? Uh, yeah. So the biggest, there might be a few, there huh? might be a few, maybe more, <laughs> more than one. Um, I think the biggest roadblock roadblocks right now are, uh, Data, data, number one, right? So it's it's getting everything organized. That's the thing where we're, we're working very hard, and I think we're getting very, very much, we're getting better at it every day. Like So I think I think eventually that will be streamlined. And then the other roadblock will probably be the, it's like the, the infrastructure portion, but that's something you can solve. Um, human adoption, I think, but that's that's also something we can, we can, we can solve in terms of, um, we don't, if you have a smart speaker in your house, you don't think anything about it anymore. It's just part of your life, mm-hmm. right? So it'll be something kind of along those lines, not say it's going to be a smart speaker or anything like that, but uh, it'll be something where one done well, it will be ubiquitous and just, of course, it's always there, right? So like, again, my my example I like to use is my kids are very, are young and they've, for the most part, I think, always had a smart speaker around. Mm-hmm. So for them, it's not weird to say, what's the weather outside and just have a, voice tell you what it's the weather is <laughs> and to us who didn't have that it's still a cool novel thing to say hey what's the weather uh that's cool <laughs> and so again it's the idea of it'll be it'll be done hopefully very well and designed beautifully so that it's it's available and it helps to augment uh, augment human health um but not in a way that's intrusive or uh you know overbearing or anything so barriers, there's definitely some barriers out there, but I think a lot of them we can solve uh, solve through good design and, and, you know, beautiful data management, basically. Okay, so a little bit more on the technical side. Yeah. Do you have a favorite programming language? <laughs> so uh, full transparency, I'm not doing a ton of programming these days, but uh, I, I still enjoy... Uh, occasionally dipping in and R has always been kind of one of the, is the language that oh, I enjoy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you said um, R. <laughs> R. And it was, it's fun because I, I think I made three solid attempts to learn Python, to get really good at Python. Each time something would come up and I said, ah, just do it in R. <laughs> and so uh, this again is, this again is a few years ago where Python wasn't as far along in a lot of the data manipulation techniques as to, you know, dplyr and stuff. Just, I'm sure it's easy, super easy now to do, but um, it, it was tough. And so I remember thinking, I need to learn this language, but I just never really materialized. And so, yeah, I, I have a fond place in my heart for R, and I'm sure I've lost almost all of it at this point. But I do, that my team does let me look at and read some code occasionally, which is always fun. <laughs> so do you have a favorite package in R or in Python? Yeah, probably. I, Python would be a little more tough for me to say what my favorite. You know, I was dabbling in scikit-learn and NumPy a little bit, but uh, didn't get too deep into those. But in R... Hopefully this isn't too simplistic of an answer, but I would spend on my own time way too much time in ggplot. What? And just, just like, because t- you could tweak so mm-hmm. much. And it was so, coming from coming from my the world, from my academic, you know, the PhD side, we had a real, I don't even remember the name of the program, like a painfully simplistic. Was it SAS? No, 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 it wasn't SAS. Like oh. It was a very old program oh. that we had to reboot on the computers. We had to go find a floppy disk. Oh, gosh. Go so that's where I had come from where I was building my graphs with my academic papers using that program. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't remember the name of it. I'm sure I'd stat it somewhere. But anyways, because it was a stats and visualization program. Uh, worked well. It was definitely a workhorse. Nothing at all sophisticated in it. And the visuals we could make, the graphs we could build, 
were functional and they were okay, but it was, uh, it was just this like overwhelming, like, oh my gosh, I've shown up and the universe is totally new with ggplot. And so you could just, you could just do so much. And so I remember just spending way too much time. <laughs> well, you can tweak every single can, little yeah, thing. Like yeah, every parameter is available and, yeah. Matplotlib has nothing on ggplot. Really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Someone might, you know, get upset about that. But. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Yeah. That's pretty fun. So any closing thoughts? Well, one, thank you very much for this opportunity. I think this is something where uh, I, I'm, I'm humbled to be here. And it's the idea where, for me, the, the, thing, the thing is staying curious, right? I mean, that's a foundational principle of trying to figure out what's going on and then the other part where this is back to the beginning of the interview uh, when you were kind of asking what brings me joy, it's, it's meeting, meeting and experiencing and getting to interact with new people, right? I don't want to be a rusty night and not be able to go out and meet people or have new things, new experiences. And so, you know, stay, stay engaged, stay open, go, go put yourself out there. Um, again, you never know. That's a part of the thing in science. You never know who's going to show up to your talk or who's going to be at a talk that you're going to. So you go to these large conferences and all of a sudden, Literally more than once, I think there was, I didn't see them, but I was in the room with a couple of Nobel laureates one time. I saw one of them, but I didn't see the other one. And they were like, hey, did you see so-and-so came to the talk? I was like, no, like, yeah. And then they left. <laughs> I was like, oh, it would have been fun to say hello, and, you know, get to interact with them. But again, it's the idea where you never know who you're going to bump into. And uh, having a positive attitude is something that you can choose to do. And it's a kind of a skill set to practice. But um, having a positive attitude, staying curious and just have fun because you don't know what you're going to be doing in five years. So, <laughs> Well, thank you so much for coming on. Yes, absolutely. Really it's my pleasure. It. No, thank you. It was awesome. <laughs>